If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark once again. Uh, if you don't have a Bible uh, with you this morning, there's some Bibles available on the back cart. Uh, feel free to take one of those and follow along. I do ask you to follow along. Um, I say this every so often, but uh, it should go without saying uh, that opening the Scriptures and having it in your lap um, is important as uh a man preaches before you because my words are only significant in your life as long as much as they align with the words that you see in front of you. And so I encourage you to continue to have your Bibles open and follow along with me as we look at this gospel. We have, uh, as is our practice here at Ascension, we have been working our way uh, verse by verse, chapter through chapter by chapter through this book of Mark. And Mark has been taking us on a journey with Jesus. It's not a journey necessarily that Mark went on, but that we, Peter went on and then told to Mark, and Mark now has written it down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And remember, back in verse 1 of chapter 1, this is a selective history of Jesus aimed at communicating to Mark's readers and to us here this morning that Jesus is the Son of God. That is what Mark wants to get through, that Jesus is the Son of God. And as we saw last week, those of you who were here, we saw the deity of Jesus on full display as Jesus literally rebuked nature and it obeyed him. As Jesus and his disciples were coming across the Sea of Galilee, Remember, there was a great storm that Jesus responded with a rebuke that created a great calm. And what did that do in the life of the disciples that created in them a great fear that gripped them? But it wasn't a fear that made them cower. It was one that made them worship. Because here's the thing. The God who rebukes nature, is also the God who is in the boat. He's in the boat. He's entered into our mess. He's entered into our world. And Jesus, the God-man, asleep from exhaustion at one moment and then calling out the wind and the waves in the next. What good news we have to celebrate this morning that our God is not distant, but is near and knows. Well, it was a rough night as we jump back into the story. It was a rough night for the disciples. And as we pick up the story this morning, uh, they have made their way successfully across the sea uh, to a coastal town uh, in uh, Decapolis, which is a largely Gentile region of the world. Gentile meaning not Jewish. Uh, and uh, there's some uh, scholarly discussion, a lot of scholarly discussion about what exactly, where exactly they were, what town they were in. Uh, there's a lot of towns that are similar in name, and, and it says they're on the coast, but the town that's, anyway, it's a very scholarly debate. The important thing is uh, they've made it across the sea. Uh, they're on the coast, and perhaps some peace awaits them after a weary night on the water, right? Uh, so out of honor of, uh, for God's word, let's stand together and uh, let me read and you listen as we turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. 
They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, that is Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. He gave them permission. And they begged him, excuse me, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000. And they rushed down the steep bank into the sea and they drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As our family uh, often, or at least once a week, indulges in our guilty pleasure of watching America's Got Talent. Yes, the Hitchcock love. The Hitchcocks love America's Got Talent. There is a question, there is a rhetorical question that comes over and over again in that show. How in the world did you do that? How in the world Did you do that? Particularly with these magic acts that come on, they wow the audience, they stump the judges, they don't tell their secrets, and they move on to the next round, and everyone's befuddled and amazed. As we come to another incredible scene with Jesus and his disciples, for for the disciples, these scenes that are piling now one on top of the other with Jesus, these are not how-did-you-do-that moments for them. For the disciples, these are more who-in-the-world-are-you moments for the disciples. And as we spoke about last week, they are slowly getting it. And Oh yes, we think we would be much quicker to get the point than they are, but we wouldn't. 
Mark is showing again and again that Jesus isn't some trickster to the disciples, to those who understand what Jesus is saying and the nature of the kingdom that he's bringing. This isn't a bag of tricks aimed at wowing the masses. This isn't magic, some sort of entertainment or self-promotion. You know what this is? This is restoration, what Jesus is doing. This is something bigger than wowing the audiences. Jesus is bringing order out of chaos. Jesus is bringing wholeness to brokenness. Jesus is bringing light into dark places. Jesus is making all things right, giving his disciples a glimpse, and and we who read this thousands of years later, a glimpse of what is coming in the fullness of his kingdom. Well, today there are three truths that I want us to to think about and meditate on and and hang our thoughts on and hang the narrative on. And the first one is this. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. Now, this isn't the first spiritual confrontation that we've seen with Jesus, even in this book, even in this gospel of Mark. And it won't be the last. But what I want to make very clear at the outset is this is a spiritual confrontation. This is Jesus in one corner and Satan in the other corner. One of the things that we are learning as we work our way through the life of Jesus is that his presence on earth in the flesh has has sort of stirred the hornet's nests in the spiritual realm. The unclean spirits, the demons, are going crazy with Jesus on earth. And and from a wild sea, which we don't know, that may very well have been a demonic sea. From a wild sea to now a wild man on the shore, dark powers are on the offensive. In the first confrontation that we looked at in the book of Mark, uh, this was weeks ago, we focused on Jesus' authority. Remember, Jesus commands and, and the darkness obeys him. It has to obey him. And then when we looked at Jesus' words concerning binding the strong man, we focused on the fact that Jesus is, is resting from the devil, the spoils of war as he spiritually confronts and and takes those who are his own and takes that which is his. Well, today Mark brings those two things of authority and spiritual spoils together. And the scene is striking. This is one of those great scenes, again, like last week's scene. Imagine the the boat comes up on the shore. It skids up on the shore. And and suddenly the disciples, as they're getting out of the boat, they, they see this clamor in the distance, or they hear this clamor in the distance, and they look in the distance, and what do they see? They see a man, naked. Mark doesn't tell us that, but Luke tells us that. Luke tells us this detail. Naked and dirty and bloody, and he is running at them. Now, if I'm a disciple, I'm getting back in the boat, or I'm picking up a river rock on the shore there, ready to defend myself and ready to defend Jesus. This isn't some limp man walking up to Jesus for healing. This is a man running in, it seems, for a fight. And Matthew tells us that there are actually two men there 
Mark and Luke focus on just one. But either way, this is quite a scene, quite a traumatic scene. And when I picture this man in my mind's eye, maybe you do uh, as well, or maybe this is helpful. I can't help. And maybe when I say this, it's like once you've heard it, it's gone. Gollum. I can't help but think of Gollum. Gollum, the hunched over, unpredictable, distorted being of Tolkien's world, of Tolkien's Middle Earth. And those of you who have not read the books, all you need to do is see the movie to see that wildness and that inhumanity. According to Mark, this man has an unclean spirit. He's in bondage to a supernatural being, or as we are going to learn, to supernatural beings who are bent on destroying him. But somehow, as they focus on this man and making him cut himself and making him cry out in anger and out of his mind, their attention turns to the presence of Jesus. And one of the interesting questions, and I know the answer to it, is, is it the man that's running to Jesus eager for help? Or is it the demons running to Jesus eager for a confrontation? Either way, the demanded response when he gets to Jesus is reverence. Boom. They fall down. They have to fall down. It's the same word. Mark uses the same word here that Matthew uses in Matthew chapter 2 to describe the wise men prostrating themselves and worshiping the boy Jesus. You see, this spiritual confrontation is really no contest whatsoever. The demons try. They try to exert authority over Jesus. We talked about this some weeks ago. By correctly identifying him. Ironically, the disciples are still trying to figure out who Jesus is. And the demons know exactly who he is. The Most High. The Son of the Most High. They give him this very reverential, wonderful name. And by doing that, by speaking his name over him, they seek to exert some sort of authority over him. And what does Jesus do? What's your name? Jesus is unfazed. What's your name? Well, they try to flex their spiritual muscles by asserting that they are many. They, they say their name is Legion. Now, a Legion is the largest Roman troop unit during that time, a, a number numbering into the thousands, maybe 6,000 men. In other words, the demon is saying, we are Legion. We are many. In other words, you are outnumbered, Jesus. But Jesus is unconcerned. He knows what he came to do. He came to destroy the work of the devil. And at their core, the demons know this. Just as they know his name, which is why they beg him. They beg him not to torment them, not to send them out of the country. And it's a curious request. Why would they not want to go out of the country? Well, perhaps... They know that Jesus is not going to hang out in this region. He's not been in this region before. And so they have relative freedom that they're enjoying, even though they know that final judgment is inevitable and it is coming. 
And so Jesus sends them into pigs. That interestingly enough, especially in light of last week, pigs that immediately plummet where? Into the sea. Into the darkness. Into the chaos. Into the abyss. Almost as if to say that's a shadow of what is to come. Where it won't be a sea. It'll be a lake. And it won't be water. It will be fire. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. Brothers and sisters, this is a simple point that the Scriptures have made before, that we have looked at before. Reminding us that the powers of darkness are real, that the grip of evil is real, that supernatural evil fueled by our own sinfulness is real. And while so much of our world is hidden from view, we must confess that Satan is active, that he's older than you, that he's smarter than you, and it doesn't have to be crazed persons out of their mind. The work of the devil is rampant in other ways. He is feeding our world with lies. He is perverting God's design in our cultural conscience. I just spoke to someone about this the other day. There is no explanation for some of the cultural shifts that we have made in our world just in this generation other than it's evil, demonic evil. He's disrupting circumstances around us. He's enslaving people in sin, in all kinds of addiction, in all kinds of self-destruction. He is inciting evil and violence and death. And certainly our eyes need to be open to this. We can't live in blissful ignorance. We need discernment, but we need not despair. And that's the good news. We who have been made alive through the forgiveness of sins which were nailed to the cross by Jesus. According to Colossians 2.15, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Believe the gospel and rest that if God is for us, who can be against us? As we looked at a couple weeks ago, the kingdom is coming. The victory is secure. And so we continue to pray. As Jesus taught his followers to pray, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil one. And let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that brings us to the second truth. I want to focus not just on the power of Jesus, but on the mercy of Jesus. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
So the second truth I want you to focus on this morning with me for a moment is that Jesus came to deliver those in bondage. It's part of his destruction of the works of of the devil. It's a subset. Jesus came to deliver those who are in bondage. Going back to that picture of, of Gollum that I put in your mind as this crazed man comes at Jesus and the disciples. Remember, Gollum was once a creature named Smeagol, a kind-hearted hobbit who changed. Everything changed for him when that ring came into his life and when that ring took its grip on him. And what did it do to him? It isolated him from others. It took away and marred the image of what he once was. And it supernaturally prolonged his life, and therefore it prolonged his suffering. You see, that is the man who confronts Jesus. Jesus can see beyond the scars, beyond the screams, to the man made in the image of God, an image bearer who's been marred by evil, who's uncontrollable, who is isolated, who is self-destructive, who is supernaturally empowered and is plagued by an evil intent that is bent on doing one thing, destroying him. The mercy of Jesus. He came to deliver those in bondage. Now in our day and age, PETA would have a field day with this miracle, wouldn't they? They'd be furious. But the destruction of pigs in this passage, the only thing we can take from that is how much more Jesus loves this man who is broken and wounded in front of him than 2,000 pigs. See, in this confrontation, Jesus reminds us of his love for us and his desire to see this man whole. He began his ministry, as he began his ministry, remember he quoted Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, our hope this morning in this promise and in this reality is in the fact that we embrace, we need to embrace, that we all, to some extent, need deliverance. We need Jesus, the deliverer. I mean, first of all, at at the beginning of our spiritual journey, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, You need to recognize that you, as this man who lived among the dead, are dead in your trespasses and sins. And without hope, except if the Lord Jesus breathes life into you. So that's the first step recognizing you need deliverance, you need new life in Jesus. But even beyond that, we acknowledge that we who are children of God are at times gripped by sin. We are gripped 
by darkness, even darkness outside of ourselves. Now, it may not be as we see it here in this passage in such a vivid, grotesque way, but it's real and destructive, the subtle work of darkness that subtly enslaves those who are made in the image of God. Paul addressed the ancient church at Corinth on some of Satan's schemes. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, he speaks of an unforgiving spirit, and he says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. What? Unforgiving spirit can be from Satan? And speaking of sexual desire in 1 Corinthians 7, he writes to married couples, Come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Well, you better believe that Satan is at work in our over-sexed, over-stimulated culture. You see, sin distorts and Satan deceives. And so I challenge you this morning to ask yourselves, to ask your hearts, what grips you? Is there something that, that nags and holds on? Is it anxiety? Is it the need to control? Is it broken relationships? Is it recur recurring sin? Are you plagued by the darkness of depression? You see, we're all in process. We're all broken in this room. We're all in need of deliverance in some way. We all are in the process of freeing ourselves into the life that Jesus came to bring. Jesus came to deliver those in bondage. And this is a passage above all. It's a passage about change. It's about transformation that can only come through Jesus, that can only come through the gospel. There are none that are too far gone. There are none that are outside of his reach. Jesus came to deliver, and yes, he's in heaven at the right hand of the Father even now, but his spirit is alive and well and in this place and in each of us. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, that says, When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And how does Paul say that this freedom comes? It comes, he says in the very next verse, by beholding the glory of Jesus. That's where freedom comes. Not in seven-step strategies, but beholding the glory of Jesus in the gospel. And the before and after of this man, you can see it, the picture before and after. It's, it's remarkable. The golem-like disfigured creature is now sane and clothed and, and in his right mind and, and healing. And the one who wanted Jesus to go away now wants to be with Jesus as part of his inner circle. And Jesus says, no, I have something else for you. And that's the last point I want us to look at this morning. 
Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. Jesus came to deliver those in bondage. And Jesus came to embrace the unclean. Jesus came to embrace the unclean. You know, I think in those first two points, I think we've uncovered the heart of the passage and the heart of Mark's message to us. But one of the things I don't want us to miss in this passage is the larger vision that Jesus is showing here on the other side of the sea, literally on the wrong side of the sea. You see, I grew up in Morristown, New Jersey, beautiful, quaint town in southern New Jersey, founded by the Quakers, often listed as one of the best small towns to live in in America. Yeah, that's where I grew up. But I really didn't grow up in Morristown. I grew up in Lenola. Now, Lenola was a part, it even sounds bad, the name, Lenola. Lenola was a part of Morristown, technically, but Lenola was literally on the other side of the tracks. And as I went to the public schools in Morristown, you didn't want the folks at school to know that you were from Lenola. Oh, you could go to that school, but you were from the wrong side of the tracks. You see, Jesus has gone intentionally to the wrong side of the sea. For a Jew, for these Jewish men who are accompanying Jesus, the stigma on this place in the Decapolis, a Gentile region, a non-Jewish region, was significant, way more significant than, than Linola. This was a region for Gentiles, for those who were outside of God's promises. They're confronted by a man from the tombs of all places. The scriptures were very clear that the places of the dead, the tombs, were not somewhere where you would go as a Jewish person. And thirdly, there are pigs everywhere. There are pigs everywhere. To the Jews, the pig is an unclean animal. They're forbidden to eat them. And the very presence there is, is evidence that this is a Gentile region and that the, the region is full of Romans who would feast on their bacon. See, to the Jew and to Mark's readers, this place reeks of uncleanness. We shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be with these folks. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to show. And we've talked about it before. It's coming. Former lines that were in place, former walls of separation have been, are being broken down and abolished because Jesus came for the nations. Now after months of silencing the demons and silencing those who he healed, what does Jesus do? He creates the first missionary preacher. And he's a Gentile. And he tells him to preach to Gentiles. Go home. Tell your family. Tell your friends. Tell them of the mercy that has been shown you. Tell them that there is no one outside of my reach. 
I am coming. My kingdom is coming to make you whole. Wow. Wow. No matter what you've done, no matter where you're from, Jesus came to embrace you. No matter what you're enslaved to, Jesus came to deliver you. And no matter what fear grips you, Jesus came to destroy that fear. And so what's the takeaway? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Cry out to him. Let your kingdom come. Deliver me from the evil one. And then, and this is the best part, tell your story. Go home. Go to work. And tell your story. As we're reading this week, one of, the, one of the quotes that stuck out on this point of telling your story is, when you tell your story, if you are not marveling at what you're saying, the people who hear you are not going to marvel at what they're hearing. Tell your story. Marvel at what God has done. Tell them what God has done of the life that you found. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. He came to deliver you from bondage. And he came for the unclean, for the nations. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again this morning for your word. Holy Spirit, take this word and take the grand, glorious, beautiful vision of the Lord Jesus that this word puts before us again and impress it deep into our hearts that we might go from this place eager, ready, with opportunity to tell of your mercy, to tell of what you've done. Oh, Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.